The binding of Isaac. It's also known as the Akedah. It's one of the most iconic episodes in Judaism and Christianity. Uh, It's difficult, if not impossible, friends, to overstate the importance of this text in the development of these religious systems. There was actually a course on offer uh, at the school I attended for graduate study that was entirely on the Akedah. It was on this passage and its reception in ancient Judaism and early Christianity. It's so key. Abraham's near sacrifice of his long-awaited son Isaac would become in Judaism a dominant tale. And in Christianity, the Akedah would become a type, a pattern, of course, for the death of Jesus Christ. The Akedah is also one of the most brilliant examples of literary art in human history, and I'm not kidding. There's a famous work of literary criticism written in the 20th century that compares this story and the way it reads to the works of Homer. So the Iliad and the Odyssey, those texts you probably read in high school. And he comments on the richness and the, the literary subtlety of this passage in Genesis 22. And we're going to look at a lot of those details together in just a minute, but let me ask you right now, what is this passage all about? Genesis 22. What is it all about? Is it about a jealous, codependent God who who needs Abraham to show how much he loves him so that, that God can feel secure in his identity? Is it about a capricious, bloodthirsty deity who has the right to at any moment demand child sacrifice? I think the question posed by this text is actually, in the end, a simple one. Not an easy one, but a simple one. Does Abraham's love of Isaac, does his commitment to his beloved son Isaac, does it threaten or weaken his commitment to Yahweh? It's a story, friends, about a literal father and son. Yeah. But no way does this story only apply to literal fathers and sons. What is your Isaac? What is your Isaac? I mean, what exists in your life which threatens or weakens your commitment to Jesus Christ? That is the question that I want us to ponder this morning. But before we go any further, let's pray, because we need it. Jesus, it seems inappropriate to give one sermon to this text. Your entire life, death, resurrection, it seems, was based on this text. Soften our hearts, Lord. Help us to hear your voice in these words. Help us to perceive what it is that you want our souls to perceive this morning. As we exit the the hurried, anxious nature of life midweek, help us to enter into a different kind of space here. May it be a space in which we encounter God and leave transformed. 
Please be glorified as we explore this text and move closer to you through it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, it's tempting, so tempting, to psychologize this text. What I mean is to insert details, ideas, which aren't actually stated in the text. So, for instance, many wonder, what is Abraham feeling when God asks him to sacrifice his son Isaac? Or or how much does Isaac know as they journey for three days without a sheep to the altar of burnt offering? Or or does Abraham expect Isaac to die for good? Or, Or does he really expect God to intervene and resurrect the boy in the end? These are all questions many have asked of this story, but friends, the text doesn't seem to prioritize them. Now, one of the most critical rules of interpretation, uh, which I learned at Moody, actually, was it is the text that's inspired, not the event. The text is inspired, not the event. In other words, the, the exact historical event that is Abraham his journey to Moriah to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, that historical event in itself is not a source of spiritual ethical benefit for us. Rather, it's the way in which that event is narrated in this text, in this scripture, that is of spiritual benefit to us. This means that trying to reconstruct the events which underlie these stories... It may be helpful in some settings, but friends, the event is not what's inspired. The the event is not what's filled with God's breath, what's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. The text is. The text. Josephus talks about this event in his Antiquities of the Jews, but that's not inspired. Early rabbinic texts talk in detail about this story, but that's not inspired. It's the way in which that event is textualized in our scripture that is inspired. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to follow the text exactly as it is written. To resist filling in the gaps, guessing at details not provided, and to rest content with what the narrator tells us. So with that said, friends, would you turn with me to Genesis 22? Genesis 22. Last week, Mike preached on Genesis 21, 8 through 21, uh, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And this story picks up shortly after that one. Uh, It's really after Abraham's encounter with Abimelech at the end of chapter 21. So Genesis 22, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 14 in the ESV, and I invite you now to stand as you are able. Stand for the reading of God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You may be seated. <clears throat> and it happened that after these things, verse 1, after these things, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning verse by verse looking at what this text has to offer. After these things... So after Hagar's experience with Ishmael in the wilderness, after Abraham's treaty with Abimelech, the narrator expects that you're reading this sequentially, you're reading the story after these things. It says, after these things that have happened, summary statement, God tested Abraham. That's it. I'm done. That's it. No, no, no. No, there's more to it, friends, but that is a summary of the story. So just like before in Genesis, where we have a kind of zoomed-out summary perspective introduced by all these genealogies, uh, these are the generations of blank, and then you get a story, these are the generations, etc. Here we have a similar statement, God tested Abraham. And then we get a zoomed-in perspective, we get the actual story. The secret of this passage, though, the, the heart of the story is revealed to us right away. What is it about? God tested Abraham. Now, recall that God had made a covenant with Abraham. He had promised to make Abraham into a great nation, uh, to give to him and his descendants the land of Israel, to bless him and make his name great. And all Abraham must do is remain faithful to Yahweh, to obey 
really the one command of circumcision from chapter 17, and to continue following his lead. If Abraham keeps covenant, God will bless the world through him. So in a sense, then, the world's blessedness depends on Abraham's faithfulness. Now, I don't mean his moral perfection, his complete lack of sin, his lack of doubt, but but trust, faithfulness in God's plan. God tested Abraham. How exactly would God test him, though? What could God do to Abraham to make sure he's truly faithful or to create stronger, more reliable trust in him? What could he do? Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Child sacrifice. As you all know, Abraham has another son, Ishmael. Ishmael was born to him uh, through Hagar, Sarah's servant, but Isaac is the heir. Isaac is the long-awaited fruit of Sarah's womb. The beloved son who, I think, has Abraham's heart. So here I I can imagine some thinking, finally God came through on his promise. Finally God gave Abraham and Sarah a son. Finally, after all their obedience, patience, and endurance, they received what they were waiting for. So why remain faithful now? Why endure the difficulty of following Yahweh in a ruthless world? Why continue to obey God and his, at times, radical, painful commands when they already have Isaac? The point, friends, is not that that Yahweh doesn't know something about Abraham, and then he learns something new in the end, his faithfulness. The test or trial here is less like the SAT And it's more like basic training. It's meant to strengthen Abraham's trust, not to tell God whether or not he truly trusts. Verse 3, after this command, all we get is Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, along with his beloved son, Isaac. Last item in the list. Notice, friends, that between God's unbelievably painful command and Abraham's action, we're given no details regarding Abraham's feelings, his thoughts, his fears, doubts. Those details aren't given because in the mind of the narrator, we don't need them. We have everything we need to, to feel the full force of this story right here. What matters is not how Abraham felt, but is that he obeyed. It says he got up, he saddled his donkey, he took Isaac and went. He could be facing the most grueling inner turmoil, the most painful doubts and fears, but we're not told about any of that. Abraham obeyed. Verse 4. It says then that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes 
slowing the pace down here, lifted up his eyes and saw the place which God mentioned to him from afar. So three full days have elapsed in which Abraham journeyed to sacrifice his son, and we are given no details from that 72-hour period. (laughs) We're given no transcript of Abraham's thoughts, no, no record of his conversation with the young man, with Isaac, with his donkey. The narrator doesn't want us to know any of that. All we need to know is that after three days, the story slows down, and Abraham doesn't just get there. He lifts up his eyes, and he sees the place from afar. That's high drama in narrative literature. Abraham then speaks for the first time since verse 1. This is in verse 5. And he says to his young men, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, go over yonder, and worship and come again to you. Now this last statement has caused considerable debate among scholars. And it's true that Abraham uses the first person plural, we will come again to you. Many wonder then if Abraham believed that God would spare Isaac or or resurrect him. Since he's under the impression, it seems, that they both would return to the young man, right? But the narrator tells us no such thing. And if this were the case, if Abraham wasn't really willing to give up Isaac for good, but only appeared willing, expecting God to intervene, I wouldn't call that passing the test. The more likely explanation is a bit morbid, friends. We will come again to you. In ancient Israelite culture, retaining the bones of relatives and burying those bones in the familial plots, often near the home, was absolutely crucial. So when Abraham says, we will come again to you, what he may mean is even though only one of us will be alive, we will come again to you. Myself and the scorched bones of my son. This would entail utter and complete faithfulness to Yahweh. The willingness to give up Isaac completely and without reserve. The author of Hebrews does comment on this text. He says, By faith Abraham offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, what it doesn't say is Abraham expected that God would raise him from the dead. It says he considered that God was able to potentially do that. The reason the author of Hebrews says this is because God had made a promise. He said to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And at this point in Genesis 22, Isaac has no offspring. He himself was a child. 
So Abraham's faith in God potentially resurrecting Isaac, which we can actually never know was present from the text of Genesis, is is faith in God's prior promise. What I mean is that we shouldn't think of Abraham agreeing to offer Isaac only because he'd get him back in the end. No. Abraham needed to feel the finality, the, the violence, the loss entailed by such obedience, trusting that that God would somehow, could somehow, still make good on his promise. The narrator of Genesis, in other words, gives us no reason to think that Abraham's obedience was anything less than complete. I am sure Abraham was confused, perplexed, in doubt, but his obedience, friends, was total. It was total. Verse 6, going on, it says that Abraham took the wood. We're getting closer. He took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. We're still just walking, but the language is too suggestive, I think, to ignore. Remember that we as readers know what Abraham is about to do. But Isaac, the character, does not. So Abraham lays the wood on Isaac here. But in a few short verses, he'd lay Isaac on the wood. What then says that he took in his hand, again slowing down, he took in his hand the fire, so the the flint or tinder box, something to make fire, and the knife, fully prepared, it says, to slay his son. And at this point, friends, for the first and last time in our story, Isaac, Isaac speaks. In the same way in which Yahweh and Abraham converse before, Isaac and Abraham speak. In verse 7, it says, My father, my father. He's holding the wood across his chest, saying, My father, and Abraham replies, Here I am. And the only difference between this response and that from verse 1 is, Here I am, my son. Well, Isaac goes on to ask the most obvious question in the world, uh, one which somehow was not asked over the past 72 hours. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, I see them, I see them, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? In other words, we're told explicitly here that Isaac does not know what God commanded his father to do. He's innocent. We see a lamb being innocently led to the slaughter. And Abraham's response in verse 8 He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. In other words, God gets to choose the lamb, not us. If you continue in the direction I mentioned before about Abraham not thinking he was really going to lose Isaac, some see this as providing evidence that Abraham thought Isaac would be spared. 
But that, friends, is not a plain, responsible reading of what the text actually says. But I think it's a hopeful interpretation based on a little bit of guesswork and assumptions. The most basic interpretation, which fits the context of the story as told, is that God has the right to determine which lamb or which sheep is sacrificed. In other words, God has every right to decide which lamb we must give, even if that is no lamb at all, but is rather a human beloved son named Isaac. The end of verse 8 says the two of them went together. That's kind of a refrain in this story. In verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Akaad, his son. That's where we get Akedah, the binding. He bound his son Isaac upon it. And then as slowly as you can narrate, it says that Abraham... It says he sent his hand, he directed his hand, he he told his brain to tell his hand, go there toward the knife. And he reaches and, and takes the knife and he lifted it up, took it to slaughter his son. Friends, before in verse 3, we have a 72 hour period that is recounted for us in half a verse. Here it takes two whole verses to narrate what happened in probably 30 minutes. The narrator slows down, suspends the climax, and pushes readers to the edge of their seat, the edge of their pew. We're waiting to see what will happen. The altar is built, it's covered with wood, Isaac is laying bound upon it, and Abraham, knife in hand, looks down at his innocent son right there, and he plunges the knife downward toward Isaac. And while his hand is moving, we hear, Abraham, Abraham, an angel of the Lord, it says, calls from heaven, And again, we get the same response. Here, I am. I don't know if you know this, but I am is one way to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of God. It's the name God tells Moses in Exodus to share with the people in the early chapters of that book. But for the third time in our story, when addressed, Abraham responds with immediate attention like a soldier on duty. Here I am, at your service, my Lord. Friends, it's safe to say that Abraham has passed the test. Again, not the SAT, but the trial, the basic training. Abraham's love of Isaac, his commitment to his most treasured possession in all the world, does not threaten his commitment to Yahweh. His connection with Isaac, his long-awaited son, does not weaken his obedience to God. The covenant will continue, sure enough. Well, the rest of the story, I think, is quite familiar. Verses 12 through 13, the angel commands Abraham not to harm the boy. 
and a ram is sacrificed in its place. So in the end, God does decide exactly what is to be sacrificed. And the story then ends with what's called an ideological statement. So the story explains why a place has its name. Or sometimes stories explain why people do certain things like the Sabbath or circumcision or something like that. And it says in verse 14 that Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Same word from before, the Lord will see to it. It's a hard word to translate. The Lord will decide or select, provide, something like that. And as it is said to this day, as this place is called to this day, on the mount of the Lord, this mount, it shall be provided. Now, there is much debate about this historically and geographically, um, but if you recall the place to which God directed Abraham, Moriah, and if you study biblical geography and, and history, you'll see that the city that would be called Jerusalem, not yet in existence, and Mount Zion in Jerusalem was located in about the same region. That would be a place where another son, a beloved son, would be led up a hill, would be bound to wood, and would be slaughtered. And friends, in that story, there is no ram. No thicket. Abraham gave up his Isaac. At least he was willing to. And God gave up his in Jesus. What about you? What about you? Like I said before, this is not a passage about a, a codependent God needing to See that Abraham loves him more than anything else. It's about God's plan to bless the world through the covenant that he'd made with Abraham. Does Abraham's love of Isaac threaten or weaken his faithfulness to God? Does it jeopardize the success of the covenant? Friends, keeping covenant with God... Staying true to his gospel mission must be supreme for us. As I look at the history of the church, countless Christians at one time or another, like Abraham, had to give something up. You think of Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, who had to give up thinking that the way, this, this radical new sect that would be called Christianity, he had to give up thinking that it was heretical and wrong. The Apostle Peter, similarly, in Acts 10, we looked at this text last year, he had to give up thinking that some dearly held beliefs about cleanliness were literally correct to share the gospel with Cornelius. James and the, the church at Jerusalem had to give up thinking that Jewishness was the only way to salvation. And countless early Christians had to give up their health and their lives during the, the plagues and the great persecution. 
You can keep going and think about the medieval Christians in Europe who had to give up the, the policies and practices of the Roman church in the Reformation. And, and the Baptist radicals who settled in the American colonies who had to give up the comforts and protections of the established Congregationalist religion. Friends, Christians today give up many things to be faithful to our gospel mission. Sometimes giving up upper middle class comforts to, to minister in impoverished neighborhoods. Sometimes giving up prejudice against certain races or classes or orientations to bring the gospel to where it's needed most. Or like Peter, sometimes giving up certain beliefs which may hinder or impede rather than mobilize the gospel. What about you? What about us? Friends, only you can answer the question, what is your Isaac? I can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Your neighbor can't do it. Only after honest reflection and prayer can you identify, can God help you identify what you might need to give up? As I close, the best part about all of this is that the God who asks us to give up our Isaac gave his very own son for us. God let nothing stand in the way of his gospel mission and covenant to redeem us. So like God in giving up Jesus, like Abraham in giving up his son, let's give up our Isaac today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus, <clears throat> for a new Isaac. The story reaches forward and points to what you have done for us in Christ. Your love of the beloved Son, the second person of the Trinity at your bosom forever. Your, your love of that, that Son of God, your love of God, did not jeopardize or, or impede, threaten your love of creation. You love us so much, Lord, that you gave up your Isaac. No ram, no substitute for us. Help us to honor you, to honor that sacrifice through our lives of sacrifice this morning and beyond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.